Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Former Nebraska Senator and Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel is in town. He's here for the inaugural installment of the Hagel Lecture at the University of Chicago's Project on Security and Threats. He'll talk with Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State, about a principled foreign policy in a contentious world. This will take place tomorrow at Mandel Hall. Robert Pape from the Project on Security and Threats will moderate. And it is nice to meet you, Chuck Hagel. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You know, we had something interesting happen uh, this morning with Robert Mueller uh, making a statement, and this apparently will be the only statement he makes on the Mueller report if he has his way. And um, what did you make of what he said there? He stayed uh, true to everything everyone says about him straight down the line. These are the facts. Here's what I did. Well, first of all, I know Bob Mueller very well. I've worked with him when I was in the United States Senate. And as Secretary of Defense, uh, he is a, a consummate professional in, in every way. I have uh, tremendous confidence in his judgment and uh, his conduct and how he approaches any job. That's, that's first. I watched that news conference, and uh, it was pretty clear to me he wanted to say in his words, clearly, succinctly, it's a short news conference, he took no questions, um, what his take was of why they uh, – conducted the investigation, what was the organizing principle reason behind it, and that was um, foreign involvement in uh, our elections in 2016, principally the Russians. And also, he wanted to set the record straight, I think, in a, in a Bob Mueller way of um, what was the outcome of uh, that investigation. He made it very clear, he said it, uh, for example, that uh, they could not indict uh, a sitting, a sitting president. president. And that's the law. Uh, he was working for the Justice Department. He followed those Justice Department guidelines. However, he also said that um, he, they, the investigating uh, attorneys, uh, his final report could not uh, resolve, absolve uh, the president from uh, any obstruction of justice charges. And uh, that was pretty clear. So I think he sent a clear message to the Congress in uh, in what he had to say today. So what does Congress do with this added pressure? And there's also this Republican congressman, Amish, who's coming in and saying, I, I think we should impeach. Uh, there's added pressure on, on the Democrats in Congress to move forward. Well, th- there is, especially with uh, Congressman Amish, his town hall meeting yesterday, where I saw some of it, explaining why he said what he did about opening an inquiry. Opening an impeachment inquiry is different from impeachment. It might lead to actual impeachment. But his bottom line was uh, no person is above the law in this country. If there is wrongdoing in any, in any level, at any level of government, especially uh, at the top of our United States government, it needs to be investigated. It needs, it needs to be reviewed. And I thought he was very articulate. What that's going to do, along with Mueller's comments now this morning, is, uh, like you say, probably put more pressure on the Democrats to go forward and initiate an, a, an impeachment inquiry. Is Nancy Pelosi essentially right that it's um, kind of a it's a political act and it's a political call eventually? Then whether do you want to throw this into the Senate where it will um, probably not fly? But is is that smart politics to do that? Well, she's you've been a Republican senator and had to go through this with the Clinton administration. That's right. Uh, 
uh, it is a tough call, especially a tough call for um, the leader of the other party. There is politics in this. Yes, it's a political process. It's it's not a trial. It's a political process. At the same time, um, there are standards and values in this country. We are a nation of laws. Uh, we abide by the Constitution, and it is a responsibility of the Congress of the United States, uh, an authority that they have, to uh, look at these things when there is alleged wrongdoing, and that's a responsibility that Congress has. So he's, she's caught in between the political and then what's the the right call for us in the Congress to uh, adhere to our constitutional responsibilities. And I think, uh, honestly, she's she's handling it pretty well. She's got a lot of pressure on both sides of this of this issue in her caucus, but I think she's handling it pretty well. Do you, you know, it sounded like Bob Mueller thought that the president obstructed justice, but he couldn't do anything <clears throat> about it. Do you <clears throat> think the president obstructed justice? Um, I do um, think he did obstruct justice. There were 10 examples given in that Mueller report of areas where uh, it uh, could be clearly um, concluded that it was obstruction of justice. As you might be aware of over 900 former Republican and Democratic prosecutors have all said that it was clear obstruction of justice. I, I haven't read all of the report. I'm not an attorney. I don't have all the facts. So uh, I make my judgment based on what I know and what I've read and going through one of those processes. I'm talking with former Nebraska Senator and former Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel. He's in town for the inaugural Hagel Lecture at the University of Chicago's Project on Security Threats. As I mentioned, the topic is a principled uh, foreign policy in a contentious world. Um, do you do you think that uh, there is such a thing as a principled foreign <laughs> policy uh, that the U.S. has been putting out there? Well, first, let's start with this fact. Uh, all nations respond in their own self-interest. Um, our foreign policy, our policy on anything, is always predicated on our self-interest. Now, that said, and there's nothing wrong with that, um, that's, a, uh, it's, that's a complete approach, and um, it's predictable. But, but also, uh, I think generally over the years, uh, not always, we've made mistakes – that uh, we've tried to project in our policies, foreign policies, uh, values, standards, uh, human rights, the things that um, enshrine this country and what I believe American citizens believe, even though we haven't always uh, stood up to it and, and adhered to those values and standards. But uh, I, I think that's what it's about. That's, and I don't think what we've seen the last two years, uh, you could say that, that um, we have a, a foreign policy based on values and based, based on standards and based on human rights. Uh, I think just the opposite. Also, uh, alliances and all of the other dynamics that have played into our successful foreign policies uh, over the years, in both Republican and Democratic administrations, it's friends, it's trade relationships, it's allies, it's common interests, it's uh, the, the system that we helped build, lead the world after World War II that we built that has kept a relatively peaceful world in 70, over 70 years and no nuclear exchange. I think that that's 
that, that's something pretty special. Why do you think that voters in the United States and around the rest of the world are so willing to chuck it right now? Because it seems like the liberal international order that the United States helped shape is in big trouble. And I'm, do most people, though, not look back on it as a set of values that were successful, but they look back on it as, um, you're a Vietnam War veteran. They're, the Iraq War was a disaster. They, uh, we, we've had a series of you know, foreign policy blunders um, bigger than any other country. Why, why not chuck it? Why not try to, uh, you know, do something different? And, and obviously Donald Trump just um, lifts the veil on, on, on his, uh, the kind of thing, you know, bald face calculations that countries make at times. Well, and I think what you have laid out and the questions that you've asked uh, – uh, is really the essence of what's going on in the world today. Look at uh, the recent uh, European Union parliamentary elections a couple of days ago. But every country in Western Europe is facing this. We're certainly facing it. Nationalism, populism, the old system hasn't worked. Well, my answer to that is, well, all these institutions that were created after World War II, um, but any institution, your radio station, has to constantly adjust. It ha has to con constantly adapt to the new realities, new technologies, new demands, new interests. That doesn't mean just destroy it or, or burn NPR down and start all over. I know that that's the idea that a lot of people have. Uh, it's been a failure, the old system. It has not been a failure, not been a failure. When you, when you look at the realities of more people free today, certainly more economic opportunities, more free than, than any time in history, the advances in mankind, every discipline, health, medicine, environment, whatever discipline, over the last uh, 70 years, more possibilities, more opportunities. Yes, of course, more challenges. Uh, technological advances have helped a tremendous amount of people and us. Yes, there, there are new challenges that come with that and concerns, but you just don't tear it all down and then start over with what? I haven't heard anybody say, well, the new order uh, in our world today should be this. Well, what? More authoritarianism? That, that's what we're really looking at, whether it's in Turkey uh, or, or Hungary or Italy, uh, I think here in the United States. Uh, that's not the right answer. That's what got us into World War II. That's uh, reminiscent of the 1930s. So um, I think this is a, a critical time in our country and the world for clear thinking, wise, steady thinking, which generally the United States has always provided to the world. And when there's no center of gravity in the world like the United States has, has given the world, even with all our mistakes the last 70 years, the world becomes chaos. And that's the worst thing that we could see in our world, chaos, disorder. Is there a way that the U.S. can support democracy and democratic values out there? Because it doesn't seem – nobody seems to be flocking to be a democracy anymore. You take a country like the Philippines, which um, overthrew a dictatorship and tried to establish a democracy. And now they've got a strong man there who's getting a ton of support and he is you know, shooting people in the streets who are, uh, are drug dealers and things. And they're accused drug dealers. Um, why you've, you've got the worst kind of authoritarian turns take, taking place uh, left and right. Did we – does democracy – did we not support it enough? Does it not work? Does it, uh, it, is it too hard? Well, democracy is hard. 
you remember the great quote from Ben Franklin after they had um, finalized the the Constitution, and uh, he walked out of of Freedom Hall and said, "We've just given you a republic if you can keep it." Yes, it's hard work. Um, it uh, it takes citizen involvement. It takes uh, every aspect of a society, of a free society, uh, to keep it free. It it takes courage. It takes wise leadership. Uh, it takes looking ahead. It takes taking care of problems uh, that are in front of us. Um, yes, it is difficult. I understand why so many people in this country and other countries think it's failed uh, because their own situation hasn't gotten better. So when that happens, there's going to be a price to pay by someone or something. The immigrants have taken our jobs or technology has taken my job or trade agreements are bad for our country because they give too much away. Never ever looking at at the advantages that come from those like trade agreements. Trade agreements have done more for this country than any other country on earth. I mean, NAFTA, all of them. I mean, tremendous uh, benefits that we've gotten from free trade. So, yes, I understand the the pressures today. I understand social media. Uh, I understand breaking news media. I understand all the factors that go into this. But we've got to be smarter than than, than just hang in there. It's got to be steady, wise, courageous leadership. And that's the same thing I would say around around the world. And I, okay, you're going to blame the European Union for all our problems in London. Uh, well, I don't think that's exactly right, but uh, at least enough people believed it uh, to vote for Brexit. But you're seeing it all over in Europe, especially nationalism, populism. Let's uh, move the immigrants out of our country. It's everybody else's fault. Uh, and at the same time, authoritarian rulers are amassing more and more authority and uh, they're dismantling, they're weakening in governing institutions that are critical to a democratic uh, free society. Well, they're still popular. People are still voting for them because of the frustrations mm-hmm. with the other. Is part of the frustration, um, you know, in this country, we've devoted so much money to defense. We've devoted, and the defense budget goes up every year and... Uh, you were brought into the Obama administration in part to kind of shepherd things uh, a little down, a little uh, quieter in the defense bill. Did we miss an opportunity to bolster our social structure with and our infrastructure with too much defense spending? Well, I think um, we did miss an opportunity to balance um, our spending and balance our priorities because spending should – follow priorities. What are the priorities of our country? If infrastructure, building new roads, uh, wh- whatever it is. Defense, of course, is a priority. I mean, I don't think anybody questions that. Your nation's security, your nation's defense. But when I was at the Defense Department, uh, I was the first secretary to deal with sequestration. After five days when I was in the job, sequestration hit. That, that meant that we took a $50 billion cut, billion, $50 billion cut that year had not been planned for or budgeted for. We were already taking a $50 billion uh, cut from the 2011 budget agreement between President Obama and the Congress. So we started seeing the Defense Department uh, budget drift down. Now, 
I, I I don't think the sequestration is a right way to do that. I think it's a very stupid way to do that. But what we didn't do, uh, we didn't prioritize and balance the budget where we focused on all America's priorities, certainly defense and, and security, but we have other priorities too. And 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 just to just to say as, as they did that we're going to approach our budget and where we're going to apply our resources based on on a arbitrary percentage of disposable uh, taxable uh, proceeds is not the way to do it. It's governing that that's the art of governing. That's the responsibility of governing. And I don't think we've governed in this country very effectively um, recently. I've got to ask you a question about. Um, the way the Trump administration is doing business. Uh, obviously, you know, in the Obama administration, people had policy differences. Uh, people argued it out. People said things in public. Um, right now, we've got a situation with John Bolton and Venezuela and Iran. Uh, he seems to be driving a foreign policy that's almost different than the presidents who is talking about him, uh, you know, and undercutting him in, in Japan and, and talking differently. What do you make of what is going on right now? Well, as an American, I think it's an embarrassment. Um, I think um, uh, it's very dangerous for our country when the world looks in to see the world's leading democracy. Uh, As Ronald Reagan once said, the shining city on the hill. Imperfect, yes. Uh, But I don't know if you could hold up another democracy in the world that's done as much for others and has has been as successful as ours. And for the rest of the world to see this, what's going on in the United States of America, the lack of governing and and the lack of prioritization um, and the dumb things that we say to each other uh, that make no sense. It's all political power. It's all based on political games. Uh, that, that's a very dangerous thing for our country because one thing that every institution, stock markets, anything, um, needs as a, as a vital dynamic, it's confidence, trust and confidence. And Gallup has done a trust and confidence survey the last 16 years in the top 15 institutions in this country, Congress, the media, big business, small business, organized religion, education. Only the military has done done well. They get about early, I think about uh, low 70s as pr- approval, trust and confidence. Everybody else, except small business, which is a little over 50, this last uh, poll, everybody else is down in the teens and some single digits, journalism, Congress, yep. politics. When you see a, a loss of confidence and trust in your institutions that are, that are the fiber of your society, not just the governing aspects of a society, but it's who the society is, organized religion, organized education, judicial systems, uh, we're in trouble. And we're going to have to deal with that. It's, it's bigger than foreign policy, and it's bigger than Bolton and the contradictions of what you just talked about, which, because those contradictions reflect how we're seen, as I said, around the world. So you've got your national security advisor and your president at odds on two uh, pretty big issues, and um, the president kind of minimizes it and laughs about it. Um, that's not laughable to the people who live in these areas around North Korea, South Korea, Japan, 
Southeast Asia or the South America. These are serious issues that we seem to be trivializing. Former Nebraska Senator and Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel is in Chicago for the Hagel Lecture at the University of Chicago's Project on Security and Threats. He'll be with Madeleine Albright, and it takes place tomorrow at Mandel Hall. Robert Pape from the Project on Security Threats will moderate. Great to meet you, and thanks for your service. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about U.S. immigration policy. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. A funeral was held earlier this week for Wilmer Ramirez, a two-and-a-half-year-old boy who died from pneumonia after being held in U.S. custody with his mother. He's the sixth child since December to die in U.S. custody. His mother did not attend the funeral in eastern Guatemala. She is still detained by the U.S. Let's talk about U.S. immigrant detention practices with Clara Long, senior researcher with the U.S. program at Human Rights Watch. Last year, Human Rights Watch produced the report, Code Red, The Fatal Consequences of Dangerously Substandard Medical Care in Immigrant Detention. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. We keep hearing about these circumstances like Wilmer Ramirez and... I think a lot of people are really concerned because you don't like the idea of children dying in custody. And we hear about all the child separations. Um, Where are we on all this? Are people focusing and changing policy or are we um, stuck in the same place? People are certainly right to be seriously concerned about the children who are dying uh, after being detained at the border. And, um, you know, there are sort of a a series of policy changes that I think can be summed up with uh, changing how the United States approaches its border from a hardline sort of criminal justice perspective to one in which the U.S. manages its border deals with the humanitarian needs of people who come to the U.S. seeking asylum, um, deals with them directly, uh, and in that way regulates migration. Um, but, but the situation that we're in is that the U.S. actually, like many countries around the world, is trying to repress uh, its way out of migration. And migration, um, people fleeing for their lives, people on the move, has been happening since humans became humans. Um, and so you, the U.S., like many other states, needs to rethink uh, a repression model because that is the model that leads to children being in dangerous detention centers. So the U.S. had this child separation policy there for a while, family separation. Right. And uh, that was pretty outrageous. And the Trump administration decided to change its policy and now has something called binary choice uh, could you explain what binary choice is, and is that still the enforcement mechanism you're talking about? Right. Well, binary choice is sort of one of a number of initiatives that the administration is pursuing to make it harder to seek asylum. So binary choice is the idea that you would be able to choose between staying detained with your child or uh, being sent back uh, alone and having and being separated from your child or staying detained or being separated from your child and both 
being detained um, by the United States. Uh, there is another sort of, you know, part of the menu of repressive options that's recently come upon on the table, which is called um, sort of in an Orwellian way, the Migrant Protection Protocols. And that's this program where on top of sort of the, bin- the detention and then binary choice um, treatment for people who are held in the United States, there are increasing numbers of asylum seekers who arrive into the United States. And the, the U.S. then sends back to Mexico to wait uh, for their immigration court hearings. Um, and so those those people are often, you know, in doing so, separated from families, end up in very dangerous border towns where they can't really get their needs met. Why does Mexico put up with that? It's a great question. Um, you know, it looked for a while as if the U.S. and Mexico were going to negotiate a program. And that's a, that was sort of in the news for a while as remain in Mexico. So there was going to be, you know, there were talks around a deal where Mexico was going to extract some concessions to take these Central Americans back uh, for the pendency of their asylum claims. And that hasn't happened. And instead, the U.S. Has, has pursued these returns in a unilateral basis. But you have to remember there's a lot on the table from Mexico's perspective. There's the renegotiation of NAFTA. Uh, the Mexican government has, you know, a series of domestic priorities. You know, topping the list is probably public security. And so pushing back against the Trump administration in a way that might harm its economy, uh, I think, is something that is pretty sensitive. I was struck by the title of your report last year, Code Red, The Fatal Consequences of Dangerously Substandard Medical Care in Immigrant Detention. Yeah. Um, is medical care in detention part of the enforcement mechanism? I mean, <laughs> is, are we that – is that where we are? Well, certainly to the extent that the medical neglect that we've documented relates to the structure of the detention system, which is that the detention – the detentions that we're writing about in this report are, are detentions that are occurring um, by immigration and customs enforcement. That's ICE. Uh, those are people who have either so crossed – all over the country. Right. Either crossed the border or if they've been apprehended inside the United States. It's not these very intensely dangerous short-term border patrol cells that we're talking about when we're talking about um, children dying. Um, nevertheless, it's a, it's a system um, that, you know, as we've documented – is linked to deaths, um, and and that's you know likely because that the whole system is shot through with the profit motive. Over sixty percent of the people who are being held in ICE detention are being held in you know directly privatized uh, facilities. The rest of them are held in county jails. The county jails also, of course, get money from the federal government to hold these immigration detainees, and the less they spend on taking care of people, the, the more, more they have. profit. And, and this is similar to the border situation, though. That a lot of people on the border are detained by private uh, private companies, too. Well, the people on the border who are um, in border patrol stations are, for the most part, in government-run border patrol stations. There are um, there's privatization in the system of detaining children. Uh, in, you know, for example, the Tornillo tent city, uh, right. which popped up and, and then thankfully sort of fell apart near El Paso, Texas, um, is an example of where of, you know, um, privatized uh, facilities for holding unaccompanied children or children who have been separated. But most of the people sort of in the short term border holding are in 
Customs and Border Protection, government facilities um, that have for a really long time had serious problems with conditions. Is there some, uh, there seem to be a lot of people and organizations that are concerned about this issue, but um, the executive drives this. Is, is there anything people can do to push, change the equation and begin to push towards something that is less enforcement harsh? Yes, there is. I mean, the executive drives this. And, you know, the Trump administration has been pretty clear that its aim uh, is to punish migrants and stop migration and that it will go to pretty great lengths to do that. But Congress holds the purse strings. And um, there is a really important role uh, for anyone who's listening's representatives uh, in determining how much money uh, these agencies get and how they spend that money. Um, You know, one of the things that you look at when you look at sort of the evolution of immigration policy in the United States, you know, for human rights advocates, you know, we see things going really wrong in in the 1990s, mid-1990s. You've got these two laws that are passed that really set us up for where we are now with Trump. But it's not just the laws. It's also the fact that we've um, increased by seven times the amount of the federal budget that's dedicated to immigration enforcement. And that's been spent and used in really wasteful ways. Um, and it's also sort of it's, it's a question of it's a question of budgets. Budgets are moral documents, and Congress controls the budget. So it seems like the budget is all about the wall and not about all the other enforcement money, which people always seem to trade off for um, some kind of concession on immigration in the past. It's like, oh, we're going to have a deal on immigration. Well, there's more money for enforcement, and here's um, something for, for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that trade-off, um, as you know, has been a part of um, of immigration reform debates for far too long. And it's one that... Um, you know that doesn't really get us closer to solving the problems that are that that we're talking about in this conversation. Yep. You know, so, <laughs> Claire Long is a senior researcher with the U.S. program at Human Rights Watch. Last year, they produced the report "Code Red: The Fatal Consequences of Dangerously Substandard Medical Care in Immigration Detention." Thanks for talking with us about the U.S. and immigration. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, where we look at international music, and we'll talk about Gypsy Punk with Gogol Bordello. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson, host of Beat Latino. Good to see you, Catalina. Hey, Jerome. Good to be here. Well, we've got some fun stuff going on today. I've I've been looking forward to chatting with Eugene Hoots. He's the front man of the gypsy punk rock band Gogol Bordello, and he's touring the U.S. marking 20 years of Gogol Bordello, and they're going to be at the Riviera Theater. It's great to meet you, Eugene. Yeah, thank you for having me, definitely. 
Thanks. You've got one of the more unique backstories of anyone who, who ever ever <laughs> who comes to this country. Uh, uh, you, you originally fled Ukraine after Chernobyl. Uh huh. I mean, there was more factors to that than that. By the 1990, we basically with my family, we were in Austria and Poland, going through that whole immigration trail. Uh, very, very well established immigration, like political refugee trail that a lot of people gone through, with various degrees of length and endurance. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, by the 1991, I was already with my family in, in Vermont, which was kind of a, in retrospective, pretty amazing place to be dropped off at. Doesn't sound like the birthplace of a gypsy punk rock band. Well, I mean, I didn't need that to be a birthplace. The ingredients for the birthplace were already deep inside of me, kind of brought it all from back home. <laughs> it's a cumulative. You know. Well, Eugene, tell us about that. What were all these like uh, ingredients brewing, and how did that happen to emerge forth and go go bordello in the uh, acclaimed gypsy punk and we won't have time mm-hmm. to read the manifesto, but you should go read the manifesto on the website. And, uh, <laughs> how did that happen? I was set on going to New York City, which is where a lot of my favorite music came from. You know, bands like you know Sonic Youth and John Spencer and Suicide. You know, Alan Vega was always one of my favorite artists. By '97, I was already on my way there, and you know, the, the kind of the key, the key like catalyst ingredients for like. Gogol Bordello, a band that I was yet to start in New York City, were kind of like, there's two things, basically, the way I see it. is One is New York influence and everything that I accumulated from there, which is a city of extreme radical self-expression driven by extreme isolation. You know, uh, it's a very alienating city. It can be. And uh, artists come to the rescue of that situation by compensating extreme alienation by extreme communication. And that's what, you know, the whole CBGB scene was all about and, and kind of art punk that went on happening in like eighties and nineties and so on and so forth. And second ingredient was basically missing the, the roots of my own at this point. Some significant time has passed between me leaving Ukraine and to kind of having that genuine kind of longing for that um, emotional message of Eastern Europe to become like so prominent. And those are the two key ingredients to Gogol Bordello, really. It's it's New York and, and it's like hardcore reinterpretation of Eastern European stuff, you know. We wanted to play a few tunes, and Wanderlust King is from your Essential Gogol Bordello playlist on Spotify. What is essential about Wanderlust King? I really actually take pride that that's on the top of our popular songs. Sometimes people latch on to God knows what and you know favor some stuff that you really didn't care about that much. <laughs> but it really happens to every band, you know. And uh, here it's kind of nails it on the right head where Wanderlust King was like a, a song written in the middle of kind of a world journey I was taking from like Siberia to Hungary and ended up in Morocco. I wrote it in Morocco actually, kind of reflecting on, on, on a on a trip to Brazil and I mean to Siberia. 
Brazil was much later. <laughs> it kind of talks about, about what we're experiencing now. I mean, I don't mean to sound like I'm some prophet or anything like that, but it was just basically talking about how everybody's life is rapidly progressing towards digital encounter of reality and where people's travel basically sums up to traveling from one screen to, screen to another, uh, which is exactly what you're looking at right now. So, you know, back in 2005, it already looked like that to me. Like, that's, what, that's what's about to happen. And I kind of sided with the idea that that is not going to be uh, fulfilling on all fronts kind of existence. Here's Wanderlust King from Eugene Hutz, the frontman of Gogo Bordello. Now all them jokers kept around just like a scarecrow's in hometown. From screen to screen, them traveling. But I'm a Wanderlust King. I stay on the run. Let me That's Wonderless King from Gorgo Bordello, and uh-huh. Eugene Hutz is with us. He is the front man, and they're performing at the Riviera Theater on June 1st, and then go up to Milwaukee on June 2nd, and they're celebrating 20 years. And that song, Eugene, is, is from a while back, and like you mentioned, it's like you were almost like prophesying or prescient about uh, the digital encounters that have taken over our reality. But So, so in these 20 years, what kind of... Uh, Lessons, you know, have you learned as as Gogo Bordello? What what can you share with us? Um, well, first of all, it doesn't really feel like any kind of twenty years. That's uh, I'm not the kind of person who is like looks back too much, almost none. And I also don't believe in advice. You know, like, <laughs> you don't believe in lessons. That, <laughs> well, I. I I, I believe in everybody's sort of path and their experience and how they interpret things is really their own system of coordinates. So I'm not big on giving advice because I never took any advice. And I don't think anybody should really take any advice from and even ask for any advice for anybody because asking advice is basically putting responsibility on somebody else. And I think responsibility is a very crucial thing to how we go on as species. In fact, the very essence of the word responsibility is kind of forgotten, but, you know, just get it under a microscope, you will see it's responsibility. It's your ability to respond to what's around. And handing it over to somebody is like giving your power away. You know, I want to ask about uh, the term gypsy. In over 20 years, I imagine it's, it's got, the reaction to it has changed. Most people say Roma now. Um, mm-hmm. do, do, how do you feel about the evolution of... Uh, what it means to be a gypsy Roma person. That's actually one of the things that I'd say 
we definitely chipped in. And it's what KRS One called edutainment. I think that a lot of our things, especially in the beginning, were kind of focused around this topic of bringing education on certain topics that were not on the surface, which is like even in simple information that you know gypsies, so-called gypsies, the Romani nation, is even an actual ethnicity. It was like complete news to people, you know. There's this whole foul mythology that follows that word around somehow people thinking that's just like as long as you're couch surfing, you're already a gypsy. It's like, that's not a gypsy. That's just like some... (laughs) That that is not what it is. Like, it has nothing to do with that at all. So don't don't bring that any of that onto my gig, you know. <laughs> you know, I had to talk some people out from showing up to our show. So just on that premise, like it has nothing to do with <laughs> freeloading and anything like that. <laughs> you know, it's like don't come. <laughs> I got um, nothing for you here. <laughs> Eugene, tell us um, more about also about your latest album, Seekers and Finders. That has a really intriguing title. Well, I mean, yeah. Thank you for noticing. Uh, the title I thought was is actually pretty uh, playful and intriguing and in, a, in a way that seeking and finding is obviously two different things and I just wanted to find that out. In fact, I think it was Buddha who was saying that in order to find, you have to stop seeking. You know, there's a lot of fake uh, spirituality floating right now. People are making careers and money for all, for all sorts of... Uh, camps and retreats and all sort of nonsense and every idiot on the planet is like has, has a youtube channel where they're te- life coaching people like in a most clueless way and uh you know i think that all those people's feathers need to be ruffled up a little bit and the uh, raw spirituality certainly exists and it's there and there are people who are very eloquent and very spiritual and have the knack for it but the herds of idiots you know <laughs> broadcasting some absolute absolute inferior nonsense is just like quadrupling by the second <laughs> you know, everybody's a seeker suddenly it's just like yo settle down like you're not <laughs> well on that note let's hear the title track seekers and finders yeah The title track from Seekers and Finders from Gogo Bordello. You can see them on June 1st at the Riviera. And if you're traveling to Milwaukee on June 2nd at Turner Hall Ballroom, a great place to see a show. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Well, one of the things that's fascinating about uh, Gogo Bordello to me is you were really at the very forefront of an early kind of, I don't want to say world music. I know that's like really a... Uh, you know, loaded term and maybe yeah. one that is not cared for, but bringing together really 
very multiple influences. So tell us about uh, kind of the different musical legacies that poured into Gogo Bordello, you know, 20 years ago till today. To me, that was like a natural way of, of, of thinking about music because growing up in Ukraine, I was exposed to everything that was going on locally, but we also listened to music from Germany and France and Italy and States and England and just about anywhere, everywhere. Of course, we knew our way to like black markets where that those records were available. But, in, you know, being seriously interested in music, it was our natural, like the group of people that I was growing up with and my family, it was a natural way to process information. And uh, the fact that music wasn't a foreign language, like didn't stop anybody from listening to it. Like that was actually irrelevant to to the vibration that music was sending out. And uh, in that sense, like once once in the States, of course, I was kind of a little baffled that people really like favor strictly Anglo-speaking music. And they were lit- limiting themselves in a lot of ways. And I mean, there's a reason for it because American music has the the greatest production, basically. And like, you know, between England and States, you have all the greatest sonic accomplishments and everything kind of like production-wise ripples throughout the world. But, you know, I never stopped listening to music from all over the world and went on discovering more and more. And uh, consequently, I um, ended up meeting more pe- people and musicians who became my bandmates who were of the similar approach. You know, everyone was just kind of, aside from coming from like Latin America or England or, you know, LA or Ethiopia, you know, or Russia, you know, everybody was just completely f- very well familiar with their own culture, but had very outward. So is that why you sometimes uh, sing words that don't have, like, any conventional meaning, don't mean anything, actually, really? Well, I mean, they certainly have a meaning. It's just they're hybrid words. Ah. But, I mean, we in, in our band, we have a lot of um, slang. We call it um, Spolish. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's what, Spanish? Well, well, it's like no. Spanish. It's like Spanish and Slavic and English <laughs> meld down. <laughs> so words like you know, por favorski will be pretty pretty popular. <laughs> but that's just like a you know, um, some of those words end up in the songs, and some of those words are just actually words from other languages, like from Portuguese. Like I lived in Brazil for six years, so that had a lot of influence on me, and it continues to be so, you know. Continues really to be actually, so. I've, I actually just don't know any other way. So, why did you live in um, Brazil for six years? How did you come to do that? I gotta know. Yeah, I mean, I was just kind of destined to do it. It was really. They needed long. gypsy punk there. They I think gypsy- they had enough of their own gypsy punk, but <laughs> something happened where I needed, and they we just kind of fulfilled each other vitamins for a while. <laughs> <laughs> People say like, yo, you've been around the world several times. What's what's the What's the main hang? Uh, I always say, you know, there's two things. I don't care who you are and where you're from. There's two things you got to get done. Is go to Brazil at least once during Carnival and go and see Iggy Pop at least once. <laughs> Everything else is like 
background noise. <laughs> Sounds like a great way to live. You know. <laughs> well, that that leads us to our closing song, which is titled "Still That Way." <laughs> oh yeah, nice <laughs> it's pick. Perfect segue. Um, so, such a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, go go Bordello. Be, we'll be able to see them live at the Riviera Theater on June first, and then on June second at the Turner Hall Ballroom. Uh, Eugene, yeah, I like it. Eugene Hoots is the frontman of the gypsy punk band Gogo Bordello. Their 20th anniversary tour is now in the U.S., and you can see them on June 1st at the Riviera and uh, on June 2nd in Milwaukee. Thanks a lot for joining us, Eugene. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me, yeah. Thanks so much. Of course. Ciao, see you there. Ciao. Thanks to Catalina Maria Johnson for another fine edition of Global Notes, our look at international music. Uh, she'll be back next week. We'll have a chat with Basil and the Supernaturals next week on Global Notes. And you can always catch Catalina Maria Johnson on Beat Latino on Vocalo on the weekends. Check that out as well. And follow her on social media at Catalina Maria J. And you will learn lots about music and culture if you do. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to have a conversation with Wendy Sternberg. She is with Genesis and the Crossroads, and they're bringing their Saffron Caravan uh, artistry to the DuSable Museum. I'll be helping Steve Bynum emcee the event over the weekend, so we'll have a chat about uh, Genesis at the Crossroads and their peace-building through the arts program tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.